It sure came fast. Just a work week remaining now until the continuing resolution expires. The fever is building on Capitol Hill to do something to avoid a government shutdown. We get the latest from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And actually, Lauren, before we get to the shutdown prospects, I want to talk about the decision of GSA to move the FBI to Greenbelt, Maryland for its new headquarters. The Virginia delegation not taking that one lying down, are they? They aren't. They are not happy about this decision. Obviously, this is a major project to, I think, $3.5 billion probably in all the investments long term that come with having a major facility. So Virginia, not happy, not happy about a change in criteria that was made along the way um, when I believe the ranking of proximity to Quantico moved down a little bit, which made Virginia a little less favorable. And it seems in the end gave Greenbelt the leg up. You know, something here is this is a lot of Democrats arguing with Democrats. There are Republicans here, too. Um, Obviously, in Virginia, there's Republicans in the delegation plus the governor. But, you know, you you kind of are pitting Jerry Connolly of Virginia and Steny Hoyer of Maryland, who otherwise agree on a lot of things against each other here. So I think that the choice has been made, but maybe the fight goes on and the rhetoric obviously did not calm down um, after this decision was announced and released. And they're calling for an IG investigation then from the Virginia side. Yes, I think they'll seek that. And there's obviously fights ahead, too, on how to fund this thing. I mean, that was a live issue in one of the spending bill debates last week because the GSA will need the funds to actually get this project underway. Um, And, you know, the FBI itself is sometimes a political football. So there's a ways to go here, even if this decision, which was very key to the process, has been announced. Will Republicans in the House maybe try to hold this up via lack of funding? I mean, in the Trump administration, they killed the whole project and said they were going to rebuild or tear down the current building in downtown D.C. and rebuild there. And Matt Gates was making noise about maybe not funding this. Well, Matt Gates made some pretty, I mean, he made some comments this week about if the building is rat infested, that's where they should stay and, and things like that on the House floor during the debate on whether to do funding for this new project. So I think the FBI is caught up in politics as well because of their role in different political matters and investigations over the last couple of years. Um, Trump allies aren't happy with the FBI. So like I say, I think that this battle could go on in different ways, but the funding stream that would have to come through one of the spending bills covering the General Services Administration, that's where we might see more happening there. Um, That bill was one of the things that got pulled last week. So there's not a final answer yet in the House and obviously a long way to go. And this project will take a good amount of time, too, to complete. Well, the current building, it was 12 years between the first appropriation for design and engineering till anyone actually moved in. You know, three administrations came and went before anyone actually moved into the building. So this is very uncertain and it's fair to say at this point. Definitely. Lots to look come on this one. All right. Well, those are fun to follow, but I guess not if you're at the FBI and you do have a rat-infested building. I don't care what you think of an agency. Nobody should have rats in the building unless it's a lab. All right. The shutdown. Friday night, midnight, it would happen unless something happens. What does it look like now up there on the Hill? Going into the weekend, there wasn't a consensus. Uh, We had a lot of talk in couple of recent days about a laddered continuing resolution. This was an idea that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, had been floating where some agencies covered by some of the bills would get one date and others would get a later date. Um, Some of the timing they were talked about shifted. Uh, That was not an idea that was resonating with 
Senate appropriators, including the chair over there, Patty Murray. So I think it's, you know, a real live question. Will the government be funded by Friday at midnight? There's five days here to get something done. And as we saw last time around, it was looking really grim on the morning of September 30th. And by the mid-afternoon, we we had a path forward, although obviously for Kevin McCarthy came at the cost of his speakership. So a lot of dynamics going in here. We do have uh, next week the federal holiday for Thanksgiving. There is, I think, some real pressure to get something done here and figure out a path forward. But, you know, going into the weekend, there was a lot of uncertainty about what that would look like. And so inevitably, if you're smart and you run a government agency, you're probably thinking about what do I do if we have to shut down going into the coming weekend. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And you can imagine all sorts of distortions that would happen with the so-called laddered to shutdown. Suppose the Navy and the Defense Department were covered, but DHS was shut down, then that means the Navy couldn't talk to the Coast Guard, for example, because the Coast Guard would be moored in place. Yes, except for those accepted personnel, as you know, sometimes they used to talk more about essential, but it's more accepted from a shutdown. People who would stay on duty, those operations continue to go on, obviously just unpaid. And people working unhappily at TSA desks next weekend, that might be a, a recipe for disaster with the travel season coming up. Yeah, I think that that's that's part of the confusion is, you know, having staggered dates doesn't necessarily work for people. And you could create, you know, it's a laddered CR today, but it's a staggered shutdown potentially in the future. And meanwhile, there are also some authorizations that still haven't happened, and those need to occur. If there's funding, you also need the authorization, such as the NDAA, but a couple of other major pieces. The NDAA is a big one. That's a bill that both the House and Senate have passed. The House has named its negotiators. The Senate hasn't. Last week, we saw House Armed Services Chair Mike Rogers call on the Senate to take that kind of formal formality step to name their negotiators. So we'll see if that happens in the coming days. But uh, there is a path by the end of the year, I think, to get that bill over the line. There was broad agreement about the top line spending, but not about some of the details in there and some of the writers. So they do have things to work out. Another one is the FAA, which was extended through the end of the year by the last CR. Uh, That one seems a little bit stalled. The House has passed a bill. The Senate talks are at an impasse. So they may not deal with that in this coming CR, but that is something that they'll be looking to do, obviously, by the end of the year, because an authorization needs to be in place for some of those operations separate from spending. And the third big authorization, the farm bill that's out there, we saw a growing consensus recently for a one-year extension of that legislation. Um, They've argued that three months here or there doesn't really help a farmer when you're growing for the whole season. So I think we'll see a one-year extension of that at some point, whether that happens right away in the CR that's coming up this week with all the other issues there or another piece of legislation. That's a big one there. And then one final one is there's an important surveillance power that's expiring at the end of the year and talks are starting to ramp up there. You'll hear Section 702 talked about a lot. That's one that needs to be in place for some intelligence activities and important surveillance matters. So that one will be gearing up in the discussions as well. That's intelligence community related, Section 702. That is. It's about surveillance, I think, of non-U.S. persons, but um, some people want to change the way that provision operates. So it's, it's not just a slam dunk straight extension on that either. There could be some calls for an overhaul. And in the meantime, there is the question of aid to Israel and aid to Ukraine, and that's turned into kind of a mess on the Hill too, hasn't it? It has. The packaging of that is the key question right now. There is support even among Speaker Mike Johnson for Israel aid and Ukraine aid, but maybe separate. And then what do you pair with those things if they move separately? We saw with Israel, it was about clawing back some of the IRS money that was provided in 2022. That didn't go over well with Democrats in the Ukraine question. 
do you put border provisions with that? Not just border funding, but also some restrictions that Republicans want. We saw Senate Republicans call for that last week. So I don't know that that's a question that will be answered in time for the CR. It seems like that could go much longer as they figure out what exactly to do there. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thank you for that complete rundown. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. And this program note, head to federalnewsnetwork.com today at 1 and sign up for our open season exchange. Everything you need to know about federal employee and retiree health benefits for 2024. New speakers daily through Wednesday. Hear from OPM Director Kieran Ahuja and federal health insurance expert Kevin Moss starting at 1 this afternoon at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance 
And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this 
particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.